take your Bibles out with me. Let's return again to the book of Genesis, in chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. This morning we're going to begin reading in verse 6. We'll read through the end of the chapter. So Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse 6. And we will read through the end of the chapter. We'll actually begin in the middle of verse 6 with the words, Now Joseph was handsome. 39, beginning in verse 6, this is the word of God. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me and to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Well, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This morning's message is entitled, A Series of Unfortunate Events, Part 2. We have already seen one unfortunate event in the life of Joseph. He was attacked by his own brothers and sold into slavery into Egypt. Now we see another as he winds up in prison for a crime he did not commit. However, understand when I use that word unfortunate, I am putting it in quotation marks because as Christians, we know that what happened to Joseph was not simply a matter of bad luck. We do not believe in luck 
happenstance, coincidences. We believe in a God who works all things according to the counsel of His own will. And we believe that when Ephesians 1.11 says all things, it actually means all things. That God has ordained all that comes to pass. Whether it's the movement or the planets, or the movement of microscopic atoms or cells, God has ordained it all. Joseph himself will later tell us that it was God whose hand was at work in all that happened to him, even in his being sold into captivity, even in his being thrown into prison. This was Joseph's comfort, that these things were not happening to him by accident. These things were not a result of mere chance. It was his God at work in him and with him and through him. Whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. I recently uh, read in a commentary about a fellow named Alan Gardner. And Gardner was a captain who became a missionary and went to preach the gospel to the people of Tierra del Fuego. Now, this is a group of islands on the southern tip of South America. And while there, Captain Gardner and his other companions, who had gone there as missionaries, they experienced a very harsh winter, and ultimately they starved to death. Uh, Their bodies were found at the entrance to a cave there in Tierra del Fuego. But scrawled onto the entrance of that cave were these words, My soul trusts still upon God. My soul trusts still upon God. The last words that were found in Captain Gardner's journal were these words, I know not how to thank God for His marvelous loving kindness. So that even in the midst of the most terrible circumstances, this man had, had real peace and real joy in his God. That's what we're seeing in Joseph's life. Terrible circumstances. And yet real contentment, real peace, real joy. Well, my outline this morning is very simple. I want us to see the allegation. I want us to see the judge and jury of this case. And I want us to see the sentence that was handed down. Now that will take half the message. Not that much, honestly. And so then what we're going to do is spend the second half of the message looking at three practical lessons from this passage for us. So let's see first the allegation. The allegation. We see it in verses 13 through 15. So uh, let's begin in verses 13 and 15. 13 through 15. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. So Potiphar's wife has been trying for many days to seduce Joseph into her bed. Joseph, because of his love for his God, 
maintained his integrity and would not give in to her. And finally, there came a day when this woman was so overcome by lust that she actually grabbed Joseph and said in a very brief and vulgar way in the Hebrew that she wanted what she wanted Joseph to do with her. And instead of giving in to this incredible temptation, Joseph runs out of the house. He leaves his cloak in her hand. Now remember, nobody was in the house but the two of them. For any other man, we would say that's part of the problem. Joseph, it's never wise for a man to be alone with another man's wife. Joseph had no choice in the matter, right? He was a slave and his job was to run Potiphar's household. However, now that he has run out of the house, Potiphar's wife doesn't know what might happen next. Maybe Joseph was seen running out of the house in his undergarments and people were going to ask questions about that. Maybe Joseph will even dare to go to Potiphar. Maybe Joseph is going to Potiphar right now to tell him what his wife had done. And so you can imagine what's going through Potiphar's wife's mind. She begins to panic as she thinks about what might happen next. Legally, in that culture, an adulterous wife could be killed by her husband. And so her life is on the line, and she's immediately thinking, what can I do to protect myself? And so she begins building this false case. She speaks ill to the servants of their master, her husband. She says to her servants, she calls them all together. She brings them into the house and she says, See, he, Potiphar, has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. She uses that word us as if she and the servants are together, as if they're on the same page, as if Joseph's supposed attack on her was also an attack on them. She's trying to get her servants' sympathies so that they will take her side when her husband gets home. See what my husband has done. He's brought a Hebrew among us to mock us, to take advantage of us, to laugh at us. She is appealing to their, to their racism, uh, or more precisely to their xenophobia, their, their belief that people of other cultures were somehow less civilized and not to be trusted. Right? She doesn't say, he brought Joseph among us. To no, she says, he brought that Hebrew among us. So she's appealing to their, to their racism. You see that Joseph? He's not one of us. He's a stranger. Um, That word laugh can be translated to mock, to make sport of, to take advantage of. And so Potiphar's wife has gathered her servants. And she's saying, don't you see? Potiphar has foolishly brought into our household this foreigner who is finding joy and taking advantage of us. She's building her case. This is the man that they had all seen rise to power over them. She may even be appealing to their jealousy of Joseph. Well, next, Potiphar's wife feeds the servants this story of how Joseph attempted to rape her and how she, the helpless victim, cried out. Remember, nobody was in the house, so they don't know that there never was a scream. And in this way, by saying that she screamed, she gives this plausible explanation for why Joseph might have been seen running out of the house in his undergarments. And then, in verse 16, we are told that she laid up Joseph's cloak by her until her husband came home. 
It, it, the, the same language is used earlier when she's trying to get Joseph to lie with her. And it may mean well that she took Joseph's cloak and put it on her bed as physical evidence. This is where he was in the bed, trying to convince her husband of her story. Now, read verses 17 and 18 with me. Verse 17. Husband comes home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you have brought among us, came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. See, honey, here's the garment. Don't you feel responsible for letting this wicked man into your home, putting me, your wife, in danger? This woman, she's practicing the art of deception. She's she's very conniving. Well, that was the allegation that Joseph had attempted to rape her. Now let's look at the judge and jury. And in this culture, with this household, there was only one judge and jury, and it would be Potiphar. Potiphar alone would decide what happens, who he chooses to believe, what he chooses to do in response to this allegation. And verse 19 tells us that his immediate response was to become very angry. In the Hebrew, an idiom is used. It says that Potiphar's nostrils were burning. His nostrils were burning. I picture like a a, a bull with the the smoke coming out of the the nose. This this man is, is furious. He is very angry. However, we are not told that his anger was directed solely at Joseph. Most likely, Potiphar was angry about the entire situation. Remember, up to this point, things had been going so well for Potiphar. Potiphar's house was flourishing. He he had become incredibly wealthy. And this was largely due to his best worker, to his personal attendant, to this man Joseph. And now, because of the allegation that his wife is bringing to him, he must lose Joseph. This is going to be a huge headache for Potiphar. It also seems very likely that Potiphar did not fully believe his wife's story. Uh, It seems that he knew something of her character, that he suspected that it was she who who put him in this situation. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because of the sentence that he hands down. So let's look at that, the sentence. Um, We know what the typical punishment would have been for attempting to rape another man's wife in the ancient world. The penalty was death. Uh, This was the uniform law in every culture of the ancient Near East. This was even the penalty that God prescribed to Israel for a man attempting to rape another man's wife. The penalty should have been death. And so we would expect, if Potiphar truly believed his wife, that Joseph is dead. Period. We actually have a story that comes to us from ancient Egypt. And uh, this story is called The Tale of Two Brothers... And in this story, one brother accuses the other brother of physically assaulting his wife. In reality, it was the wife who had seduced the brother. Well, in the end, the one that was the husband discovers the truth, and both the brother and the wife are killed. And so this is what we would expect to see. We would expect that if he thinks that Joseph truly attempted to rape his wife, Joseph's going to die. 
If he thinks that maybe his wife is just covering it up and both of them are in on it, both of them are going to die. Either way, we would expect someone to die. That's not what we see. Instead, we read in verse 20 that Joseph was put into the king's prison. This was the prison that Potiphar had access to because of his position as captain of the guard. By the way, this prison was on Potiphar's property, may have even been connected to Potiphar's house. Now, if you know much about the cultures of the ancient world, this might seem strange to you. Because ancient laws do not speak of jails. Ancient laws do not speak of imprisonment. In fact, imprisonment is a somewhat novel way. It's a, it's a newer way in history of punishing criminals. In, in, in the days of the Old Testament, if you stole something, you were much more likely to have a hand chopped off than to actually be put into, into prison. Prisons were not known. Prisons were, were not thought of. However, Egypt was the great exception to this. Uh, we have many Egyptian documents that speak of people being put into prison. And so it was the, the, the lone culture in the ancient Near East that made much use of prisons. And a lot of Old Testament scholars point that out because they say it's another evidence that what we have here in the book of Genesis is reliable and trustworthy. Now, let's look at verses 20 through 23. Verses 20 through 23. Let's see the sentence that is cast down. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now please understand, Joseph did not start out with this high position of authority in the prison. Uh, in fact, we're told in Psalm 105 that Joseph's feet were put in shackles, that his neck was put into a collar of iron when he was thrown into prison. And so just as it was in Potiphar's house, so now in this prison, Joseph will slowly rise in authority as he proves himself submissive and faithful to the one who is in charge. And so we've seen the allegation, this charge of attempted rape, untrue, of course. We've seen the judge and jury, Potiphar, who becomes very angry but doesn't seem to fully believe his wife. And we've seen the sentence that was handed down, namely that Joseph is put into the king's prison. Now, let me draw a few lessons from the passage. Number one is this. Unjust suffering sometimes comes into the lives of God's people. I'll say it again. Unjust suffering sometimes comes into the life of God's people. Joseph was a man of God, a strong believer, a man of purity, a man of hard work, a man of faithfulness. Not a perfect man, but a, a godly man. And yet twice he has his cloak forcibly taken off of him. Twice the end result is him being put into shackles. Job, godly man, lost his wealth, lost his family, lost his own health, and yet 
this was not due to any great wickedness on his part. In fact, it was Job's faithfulness that made him Satan's target. We think of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These men were among the the holy remnant of Judah. They were among the very few who, who knew God, trusted God, obeyed God, and yet they were among the first to be taken into captivity to be thrown into a a den of lions or into a fiery furnace. They were not placed in those situations because of their sins. They were placed into those situations because of their faithfulness, because of their godliness. We think of David being hunted by Saul, Elijah being hunted by Jezebel, Jeremiah thrown into an empty well and left to die, John the Baptist having his head cut off, In each and every case, these men suffered and suffered greatly, not because of any particular sin in their life, but because of their faithfulness to God, because they were doing the right thing. This was true of Jesus, was it not? Think of the suffering of our Lord. He willingly submitted Himself to it. He laid His own life down, not because He had sinned, but because he was being obedient to his Father. And after the Lord Jesus, 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred for their faith. Many endured being beaten with rods, being stoned, being imprisoned in horrible conditions. The Christians in the book of Hebrews were having their homes plundered. Why? Because they were trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Tradition holds that the Apostle John, the only apostle who was not martyred, that he was thrown into a a pot of boiling oil. And so these are extreme kinds of suffering, and yet we cannot deny that the pattern of Scripture is clear. Suffering comes to all of God's people, and sometimes the suffering is not a result of our sins. Just the opposite. Sometimes suffering comes to us unjustly when we have done the right thing, the good thing, the faithful thing. Church, when you are seeking to follow Jesus, and in that path of seeking to do the right thing, pain comes upon you, suffering comes upon you, loss comes upon you. Do not think that God has somehow taken His favor away from you. Do not think that somehow God has stopped loving you. Know that you are simply walking the path that many believers before you and ultimately your Lord Jesus Christ before you has walked. Look to their example. Ultimately, every trial is for our good. Ultimately, every moment of suffering ordained for your life by God will result in your greater happiness and glory in the life to come. So don't be surprised by suffering. Expect suffering in the Christian life. Uh, Last Sunday, while we were gone, uh, we were at Jim Upchurch Church in Gibsonville on our way to the mountains, and, uh, and his message last Sunday morning was on this. Do not believe the gospel of health and wealth. Do not believe the gospel of come to Jesus and then be surprised if anything goes bad because God promised a bed of roses. God does not promise a bed of roses in this life. God promises us hardship. He said to His disciples, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. 
He told us to, to expect suffering, to expect pain, because this is the way that God refines his people. This is the way God tests our faith. This is the way that God makes us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are promised suffering, and we are promised that God will be with us in our suffering as an anchor to bring peace and rest to our souls. Well, the second lesson is, lesson is this. Because of our God, we can respond to suffering with contentment and integrity. Let me say it again. This is so clear from Joseph's life. Because of our God, we can respond to suffering with contentment and integrity. I do not want to minimize the suffering. The suffering is real. The suffering hurts. The Bible does not whitewash that in the Scriptures. It is clear. There is, read some of the Psalms in which you can just tell the agony that David is experiencing. Think about Jesus in Gethsemane. The Bible does not pretend that, that real suffering doesn't come into the Christian life. It does, and it hurts. But at the same time, the Bible says that through our God, we can endure that suffering with true, deep contentment, and with integrity, not giving in to sin or unbelief. Mount Hermon, the question is not whether or not you're going to experience suffering. You will, and many of you are. The question is this, how will you respond in the season of suffering? Joseph teaches us that it is possible to respond well with great contentment. Just as we saw at the beginning of this chapter, again we see it. Joseph gives no evidence of despair, no evidence of anxiety. We read no words of anger, no words of grumbling, no words of complaining towards God. We just find Joseph now in prison, unjustly being faithful, continuing to do the right thing. And we ask, where does Joseph get this kind of contentment? Where does this young man find the resources to hold on and obey in the midst of being treated so badly? And we remember the key phrase of this chapter. The Lord was with Joseph. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 23, the Lord was with Joseph. Over and over again, we find the secret to Joseph's contentment. His God was with him. Now church, we know that our God is omnipresent. Our God is everywhere. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Solomon, when he dedicated the temple to God, cried out, O God, will you indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. How close is God to us? Acts 17, 28. In God we live and move and have our being. So we know that God is everywhere. We know that He is everywhere. But we also know that God is especially present with His people. That God is with His children in a unique way. It isn't just that He's here with us. 
It's that He's here for us. He is here seeing all that we endure, and He is here to sustain us. He is here to provide grace to us. And so, precious verses from Isaiah 43, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. The message of the Christian life is not, you don't have to walk through waters, you don't have to walk through rivers, you don't have to walk through fire. No, the message of the Christian life is, you will walk through those, and God will be with you, and He will sustain you, and your soul will not be consumed. That's our hope, and that's our confidence. David, meditating in Psalm 139, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of the hardest seasons of our lives, even in the midst of the places that seem dark and extreme to us, God is yet with His people. David prays to God, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, somewhere in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me will be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, for even darkness is as light with you. I mean, what what an encouraging thought. Do you see why Joseph was able to have such contentment? No matter how great the difficulty that God brings our way, He does not intend for us to go through it alone. Even as He tests our faith, He gives us every reason to keep on believing. He's right there beside us, giving us all we need to hold us up. So often, we allow the scariness of our circumstances to be more in our view than the greatness of the God who is with us. Have you ever done that? Though the God who created the galaxies is right there with you to care for you, And though He has promised that He will allow nothing to happen to you that is not for your good, yet in some moment, we focus more on the daunting circumstances than on the promises of God that cannot fail. Like Peter, taking his eyes off of Jesus, seeing the the waves and beginning to sink. Remember, it was because David was able to confront Goliath with courage. I'm sorry, it was, it was the reason that David, David was able to confront Goliath with courage was not because the circumstances were in David's favor. Right? We would all say that was, that was daunting circumstances. From every earthly perspective, things looked bad for David. It was his head that was going to be cut off. But David was able to confront Goliath with courage because he was seen with the eyes of faith. He knew that the God who was with him was greater than this giant of a man and that Goliath in the hands of God was like Loki in the hands of the Hulk. He was a puny giant. Could not stand. John Bunyan, 
like Joseph, spent time in prison because of his faithfulness to God. John Bunyan was separated from his family, including his blind daughter, whom he loved dearly. John Bunyan knew what it was to experience long, hard, heart-wrenching trials. And he wrote a little book called Seasoned Counsels, Advice to Sufferers. And in that book, he reminded us that the key to facing trials is learning to live upon our invisible God. It is learning to trust in God, rest in God, lean on His everlasting arms, even though we cannot see Him and we can see all the dangers and trials around us. It's learning to live with the eyes of faith, not the eyes in your head. The key to contentment is suffering is not only knowing God's presence, but trusting that the God who is present is the God who is sovereign. The God who is with me is the God who appointed this trial for me. The God who is with me is the God who has appointed how severe this trial will be. He has appointed how long it will last. My God does not find pleasure in bringing misery upon His children. He is like a good physician who sometimes applies just the right amount of painful medicine in order to root out the diseases of the soul. And so God is working in Joseph's life here. God is testing Joseph. God is teaching him humble faith. Why is God doing this? Because God has big plans for Joseph. God is getting ready to to exalt Joseph. God is getting ready to do huge things, ultimately for your salvation and my salvation, through Joseph. But he's got to go through the fire first. And so it is with us. Heaven is waiting for us. Glorious dominion with Christ is ahead for us. But we are in the days of preparation. And it includes suffering. And it includes trials. And it includes testing. But our God is with us. Here's what Bunyan said. There is that of God to be seen in the day of trial as cannot be seen in any other day. His power in holding up some, His wrath in His leaving of others, His making of shrubs to stand and His suffering of cedars to fall, His infatuating of the counsels of men, His making of the devil to outwit Himself, His giving of His presence to His people, his leaving of his foes in the dark, his disclosing the uprightness of the hearts of his sanctified ones, laying open the hypocrisy of others, all this is a working of spiritual wonders in the day of trial, in the whirlwind and the storm. Listen to this. This is so good. So good for your soul. We are apt to overshoot in the days that are calm, to think of ourselves far higher and more strong than we actually are and that we find us to be when the trial comes upon us. We could not live without such turnings of the hand of God upon us. We would be overgrown with flesh if we did not have our seasonable winters. It is said that in some countries trees will grow but will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. In other words, John Bunyan is saying, we are so prone to pride And our flesh is so prone to govern and lead our lives that if God did not bring suffering to us, if God did not bring trials to humble us, our flesh would take over and we would not persevere as we read earlier in our confession. One of the ways that God... We we say, once saved, always saved. As if it's easy. 
Do you know how God keeps His people saved? Sometimes by humbling them in the dust through painful trials. That's how He does it. Sometimes to root out sins in our lives. Somehow to, sometimes to keep us from straying away through pride. He brings tough, tough days and He's doing it out of love for our good. So here was the key to Joseph's contentment. That His sovereign, loving God was sustaining him. And the result was that Joseph continued to live with integrity, even in prison. He was faithful to those over him, particularly the keeper of the prison. He could have argued to the keeper of the prison, you have no authority over me, I shouldn't be in here, I didn't commit this crime. Instead, he served well, he worked hard, he proved himself trustworthy, and God blessed him, so that even in prison, he rose in authority and reputation. Brothers and sisters, whatever situation you are in right now, know that your God is with you. Find fresh courage and serve with integrity. Work hard to fulfill the obligations placed on you and pray that God would make your short time on this earth as useful to Him and His kingdom as possible. Let's close with this last lesson very briefly. We should see our Savior afresh in the life of Joseph. We should see our Savior afresh in the life of Joseph because here is the pattern we see in Joseph's life. Joseph is exalted. Joseph is humbled. Joseph is exalted again. He was first exalted by his father Jacob, then humbled by his brother selling him into slavery. Then he was exalted in the house of Potiphar, and then he was humbled by being thrown into prison. And yet he is going to be exalted yet again over all of Egypt that pattern of exaltation, humbling, exaltation, that is very, very important because it was also the pattern of Israel in Egypt. The people of Israel, because of Joseph, were at first welcomed and esteemed highly by Egypt. Uh, We're going to see that Jacob, Israel, right? Joseph's father, Jacob. Because of Joseph, Jacob is going to get an audience with Pharaoh himself. And he's going to be warmly welcomed into the kingdom. Joseph's brothers are going to be warmly welcomed into the kingdom. Israel is going to be well thought of by Egypt. And yet, as years turn to decades, decades turn to centuries, Joseph will be forgotten and things will change. Israel will become humbled in Egypt as they become Egypt's slaves. Israel will suffer under God's, I'm sorry, under Pharaoh's unjust decrees. But, Egypt, but Israel will be exalted again. Exalted with Joseph, humbled in slavery to Egypt, but then exalted as God leads His people out of Egypt. In fact, as Israel leaves with much of Egypt's wealth in their possession, and they leave Egypt, the king of Egypt drowning behind them in the Red Sea. It's that same pattern. Exaltation, humiliation, exaltation. Excuse me. What this all points us to is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was exalted at the beginning. He was the beloved Son of His Father and is. He knew sweet communion with his father. He knew it from eternity past. Yet Jesus was humbled. He humbled himself by becoming a man born under the law, giving up the glories of heaven. 
He humbled himself even to die the cruel death of a cross, to bear the punishment that sinners deserve. And yet after this humbling, he was lifted up to a status never held before. He had always been the Son of God. Now he was exalted as the second Adam, the one who had perfectly fulfilled God's commands, the one who was now a Redeemer and a Savior and the rightful King over the great kingdom of God. Friends, this pattern that we see in Joseph, that we see in Jesus, is essential because it's also the only way that you and I can go to heaven. We used to be exalted in our own eyes. We were full of pride. We're called to humble ourselves, to turn from our sins, to be a disciple of Jesus. We're called to humble ourselves and submit to Jesus, to trust Him, to rest in Him for salvation. We are no longer to be exalted in our eyes. These are not the days of our exaltation. These are the days of our humbling. These are the days where we are to be brought low. These are the days when we are to go through trials and suffer as we seek to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. But God has promised that just as Joseph went through his season of humbling and then was exalted, and Jesus went through his season of humbling and then was exalted, so you and I are to go through this season of humbling. And when we take our final breath, we too will be exalted that the worst suffering of this life will not compare to the glories that are coming our way excuse me so Mount Hermon let us look to Christ in this season of humiliation let us rest in him let us find our, our worth in him let us find our strength for every trial let's pray Excuse me. Let's take a few moments. Let's everybody just respond quietly in your heart. We've heard the the three lessons that we should expect trials, that unjust suffering is a part of the Christian life that because of our God we can face suffering with contentment and integrity and that ultimately all of this points to Jesus Christ who lived this life before us. So let's take a few moments and let's respond quietly to God in our hearts and then we'll join together in singing. Let's pray.